So God, speak to us now through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I uh, put in the bullets in there, I want to talk to you today about Revelation. But I want to be really clear, I'm not going to talk to you about the book of Revelation. That's what most people think of when they think of Revelation. That's not what I'm talking about. And I don't even mean the idea of prophecy, predicting the future or something like that. No, the way I'm using the word Revelation today is simply the idea of God revealing Himself to us. That's a topic I want you to get in your head right now. Uh, Lily Tomlin said something funny years ago. She said that if you talk to God, we call it prayer. If God talks to you, we call it schizophrenia. (laughs) And and she's kind of right. That's the way most people tend to think, that prayer is cool. It's okay to talk to God. But if you ever say that God has said something or even revealed something to you, that's just kind of weird. And I'm here today, over the next 30 minutes, before we go to our communion table, to try to blow that thinking out of the water, uh, to try to get us nudges maybe a little bit off center in our worldview to consider this Jesus that we follow and that there's a lot more to him than many of us might realize. So let's dive into our main point today so that we're all on the same page. Here's what the gospel account before us today as we make our way through John, and now at the end of John chapter 1, will show us, and that is that God wants to reveal himself to you. Let's be, keep it very personal this morning. God wants to reveal himself to you. Uh, that's what Jesus is going to teach us today. So uh, we're in John, and we're at the end of chapter 1. We're at verses 43 to 51. If you brought a Bible, and venues and campuses, if you brought a Bible with you, open up to John 1, verses 43 to 51. And I'm going to fill you in on what's happening here in this account, and then we're going to read verses 50 and 51 in a minute. But let's walk through, let me walk you through uh, what's happening here in this account. It's very early on, obviously, in Jesus' three years of ministry. But it's interesting, if you're reading John in one sitting, you know that at the beginning of chapter 1, the author, John, has already let us in on who Jesus is. He does this in the very first verse. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you skip down to verse 14, and it says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So we know as one's reading the book who Jesus is, that he's God come in the flesh. We call it God incarnate right from verse 1. But what we need to realize by the end of chapter 1 here is that nobody else has discovered that yet. Uh, They're still calling Jesus rabbi. They're referring to him as the Messiah, which are both true, but they didn't really know that that contained the fullness of deity and Jesus' eternal nature and all of that. But it's going to start to change as we end chapter 1 and go into chapter 2. After John the Baptist in the middle of chapter 1 kind of outs Jesus by calling him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, a few key disciples, John, Peter, and Andrew, begin following Jesus. He's getting a following. And then in our account before us today, Jesus wants to add some more disciples to his starting lineup. So he finds a guy named Philip, a very ordinary first century citizen, and he gets Philip to follow him. 
And just like today, where word of mouth is the best marketing technique, Philip goes and finds one of his friends, a guy by the name of Nathaniel. The other gospel writers are going to call him Bartholomew. And Philip tells Nathaniel, and I quote, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now again, that's a very important phraseology that's used there. It belies their understanding, or I would argue their lack of understanding of who Jesus is. I mean, they're all technically correct words, but they're understating it, or at least Philip is, if we ever saw it. Yes, Moses wrote about him in the Law and the Prophets, but Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, a very human description of a guy who will be 100% divine. And so again, simply note that they're growing kind of slowly in their understanding of who Jesus is. And it's here where the drama gets thick, if not awfully human, because Nathaniel responds in a way that's just classic first century bigotry, if there ever was it. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Isn't that interesting? Some people think the Bible's made up. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, that really happened. And it's very human, the response. He says, hey, we found a guy that we think is the Messiah. He comes from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response is, hey, can anything good really come out of Nazareth? Uh, Let me show you on a map what this means. If you look up at your monitor here, I thought it was going to be there. There you go, Nick. We're going to be over here at your monitor. Uh, This is a blown-up map of northern Israel and the uh, province of Galilee. So you'll see the Sea of Galilee in the center there. And then go to the way top of the Sea of Galilee, you see Capernaum, and then you see Bethsaida. And those are the two towns that Jesus and the disciples and John the Baptist are all in here in our setting. And then now look where Nazareth is. Go to the the, uh, pink Galilee there. Go down. That's where Nazareth is. So, so, So far to the southwest of Capernaum, and Bethsaida, where Nathaniel and Philip and all them are from. Nazareth, you'll notice, was not a seafaring city like Capernaum. It was not a significant town as Capernaum or Bethsaida was. It was most likely a poorer town, not as significant. So as one of the early church fathers would write in commenting on this, he says, Nathaniel saw the people from Nazareth of a more boorish and dull disposition than others. Some of you aren't going to like this, but here's how I liken it today. This is how some Paradise Valley people think of Scottsdale. Amen? This is how some Scottsdale people think of Gilbert. This is how some Gilbert people think of Yuma. I don't know, but I've only been in the valley here eight years, and I realized the pecking order pretty quickly. And I'm not proud of that. I mean, people in their insecurity tend to think less of those that are not like them, and so they judge them. It's an ugly trait of humanity. But it occurs now, and it occurred back then, and that's exactly what's going on here. Nathaniel's not getting off on the right foot (laughs) in his understanding of Jesus. But you've got to love Philip. He's fairly non-reactionary in his response. I love his response. He says to Nathaniel, come and see. In other words, don't judge so quickly. Come and meet the guy and see for yourself. So Nathaniel goes and meets Jesus. And again, here's where you can't make this stuff up. As Nathaniel is literally walking toward Jesus, Jesus says, Behold. 
an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. That word deceit here means trickery, falsehood, slyness. It refers to an ugly character trait that human beings tend to have. It was a word used in ancient Greek to talk about bait for fish. You trick the fish into coming into the net. And some human beings have that character trait, that inward disposition of heart. Many of you know people like this that are kind of deceitful. And Jesus is saying that Nathaniel, his heart and his character is not like that. As one commentator says, there is nothing phony about Nathaniel. It's WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. There's an authenticity to Nathaniel and his heart. And it's a great compliment and comment on Nathaniel's character that Jesus makes here about Nathaniel. And you gotta love Nathaniel's response. He did not suffer from a low self-image. He says, how do you know me? Now that's an interesting response, isn't it? If Jesus said to me, here, here, here comes a good Scottsdaleite, Jamie, in whom there is no deceit, I'd say, well, there is actually some deceit, Jesus, and I'm kind of fallen, and I appreciate the compliment, but it might be a little bit too strong or what have you. But Nathaniel's response, some see as arrogant. He basically just says, yep, you're right. How do you know that about me? But what most Bible experts point out is that really what Nathaniel's getting at here is that he wants to know how did Jesus read his heart? How, how would Jesus really know that about him? Again, deceit is an inward character trait. It's a disposition of one's heart and character. It takes looking inside someone to really know them, to understand that. And so he's basically saying, how do you know that about me? And Jesus answers him and he says, before Philip called you when you, un when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Isn't that an interesting answer? And again, it confuses some, but it really shouldn't. The fig tree back then was a tree that provided shade and respite from the hot Mediterranean sun. It was a place that people would go to midday to get out of the sun and to meditate, ponder, relax, and for a good Jew to pray. They would sit under this tree for some quiet time in order to commune with God. And Nathaniel had obviously been sitting under a fig tree, hopefully pondering the things of God. And when Jesus says, I saw you, please see this, guys. He doesn't just mean physically. What Jesus means there is that I saw into your heart, and Nathaniel gets that. It's a double entendre here. I saw you physically, but I saw into your character, which is why I can say that in you there is no deceit. And Nathaniel is blown away by this revelation. And so he says to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And essentially Jesus responds by saying, this is your response simply because I sized you up under a tree? And then Jesus caps off this scene by leading Nathaniel to the mountaintop of what he is trying to communicate to him, and by extension, as we'll see, you and I, look now at verses 50 and 51, either in your Bibles, in your outline, or on the monitors here, and let's look together how this thing closes. Jesus says, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Nathaniel, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We say, whoa. Whatever that means, it sounds pretty awesome. And that's the point. A lot of Christians really don't know what this means here. It's funny. This is a very simple 
uh, scene here where Jesus is calling, you know, the next couple of disciples. And, and if you press most Christians to say, okay, what do verses 50 and 51 mean? You'd get that infamous deer in the headlight look, I think, with most Christians today. But it really isn't as confusing as we make it. Almost surely what Jesus is doing here, and I'll dial into this, is that he's bouncing off a famous Old Testament story found in the book of Genesis chapter 28 that any good Israelite like Nathaniel would know. And it's a story about Jacob, the third patriarch in the Old Testament, uh, the man who was going to lead Israel toward the promised land. The promises would be fulfilled through Jacob. And Jacob in chapter 28 has a vision. And in his vision, he sees a ladder going from earth to heaven. And it says, and I quote, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The exact same words that Jesus uses here in John 1 are the words used way back in Genesis to talk about what we call Jacob's ladder, Jacob's dream. And obviously the point of Jacob's vision in Genesis is that it was God's way of telling Jacob that he was breaking into this world with his protection and promise to Israel. That heaven would be opened up, that heaven would be unleashed, and that all of God's goodness was going to be poured out upon Israel, and that his revelation and his constant presence was going to be made available to little Israel. And we know that that's what this scene means, because then you read on in chapter 28 of Genesis, God says exactly that. And so don't miss, you got a ladder with God's angels ascending and descending, the literal presence and power of God with Israel. That's the point of Jacob's dream and vision. Now watch this. Go back to John 1, in Jesus referencing this story, and in giving a direct quote about the angels ascending and descending, there's one big difference. Did you catch it? There's no ladder mentioned in Jesus' use of this passage. And the question that I would put before you is why? Why does Jesus, I believe, very intentionally omit the ladder? And the answer is clear. Look at verse 51 again. He says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What most Bible experts point out is that Jesus is the ladder here. That that's Jesus' point. That he's saying back in the Old Testament, you had this opening of heaven and God's revelation upon humankind. And there was a ladder that God used to bring his truth down to Jacob and Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David. He's saying, but now that I am here, the the incarnation of God, he's saying, I am the medium of God's revelation. Jesus is how God wants to reveal himself to us. Which, by the way, is a quick side note, is why Jesus is so important. I told you guys this before, but I'm sure you get it too. I, I, my seeking friends will ask me every once in a while in a moment of honesty, why are you guys so like rabid about Jesus? I had my best friend back in Cleveland years ago when I first became a Christian. He said, you know, if you would just be a liberal believer in God, we'd solve all of our problems between us. But as soon as you bring Jesus into it, it just makes everything awkward. <laughs> Franklin Graham says the same thing in his book uh, about Jesus. He he just says when he's being interviewed by uh, CNN or MSNBC or even Fox, he says that he's great as long as he stays with God. But the second he mentions Jesus, it's a game changer. But the reality is, is that without Jesus, you have no revelation of God. 
here in the New Testament. He is the revelation of God to us. He is how God, maybe look at it this way, he is how God has chosen, as the Bible says, in these latter days to reach out to you and me. As Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you've not seen me, then you have not seen the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity come to earth, and he is the revelation of God in these latter days. And that's what he's communicating to Nathaniel here. It's powerful stuff. And though some of you might be tempted to think, well, this is what Jesus says to Nathaniel. He didn't really say it to all of us. I would say not so quick. He actually did. One of the cool things about studying the Bible in the Greek, which is what they train us pastors to do, is that we can be very sure of what we're teaching and how we're interpreting the Bible. Not that the English is bad, but sometimes when you translate something from Greek to English, it loses something. Here's the example. In the second person singular in the English language, we use the word you, Y-O-U. In the second person plural in, this, in the English language, what word do we use? You. In other words, there's no difference, and only the context can tell you the difference, unless you're from where Kim and I are, and that's rural Ohio, where we use the word used to. And so, you know, we might do it like that, like, hey, used to, get over here, or something like that. But other than that, like redneck language, we really don't have a way of communicating you in the plural. But the Greek did, and here's why that's important. In verse 50 here, it's in the singular. It's Jesus saying, Nathaniel, you will see greater things than these. But in the Greek, and it's hard to see it in the English, in verse 51, Jesus switches to the plural you. So it reads like this, Nathaniel, you will see greater things than these. Then verse 51, and truly, truly, I say to you, all of you, plural, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Guys, this is a promise. Jesus says to all of us who seek to know him, you're going to understand who I am, that I'm God come in the flesh to bring you to the Father, and I bring with me the open gates of heaven coming to earth, and I'm heaven-bent on revealing the Father to those who desire to know him through my teaching, my sacrificial death for you on the cross, and even in my resurrected state, my presence and movement in your life. You see, here's the point Jesus is trying to make in this account before us, and I know no other way to say it, guys. God wants to reveal himself to you. That's what I walk away with, with this passage, that in and with Jesus comes the revelation of God, the revealing of God. And he wants to do that in your life. And you say, how? Well, we're going to talk about that in the few moments we have remaining here. Just, just quickly, let's finish the text here and understand that in this text, Jesus reveals himself in two ways. I don't know if you've caught it. Uh, the first way is that he reveals himself through the Word. So I would say Jesus reveals himself to you through the Word. And then Jesus reveals himself to Nathaniel. We just parse that whole thing out personally in his life and circumstances. So I would say Jesus reveals himself to you personally. So verse 45, Philip says, we found the one whom the law and the prophets, Moses and the law, make known to us. So God reveals himself to us, don't miss this gang, through the written word, which is why the Bible is so important, why it's like no other book on planet earth, it's why we study it, it's why it's our middle name as a church, because we know God through his revealed word, and we know Jesus through his revealed word. But then also, we know Jesus 
through very, our very circumstances and life events. As Jesus showed up, breaking into Nathaniel's very life and revealing to him that he knows him, even deep in his character, that whole deceit thing. Please see, God wants to reveal himself to us, and he does so through his Son, in and through the written word, in and through our very life circumstances. He loves you, and he wants you to know him. And every day, maybe look at it like this, he is doing something, I promise you, we'll, we'll wrap up this in a minute, but he's doing something to knock on the door of your heart and your mind so that he might let you know more of who he is. You know, this seems like such a simple thing to some of us here today. It really does. We are tempted to think, well, Jamie, this is like really simple. I already know this stuff, yada, yada, yada. But what you need to know is that when the New Testament players, like Paul the Apostle and the other guys, discovered this aspect of Jesus' revelation in our lives, this became one of their main arguments for why people should become Christians. Now, let me show you. When Paul is arguing in front, in, bunch of a front of, in front of a bunch of intellectual Greek philosophers at the Areopagus in Athens in Acts 17, listen to the argument that he makes. Look up here at your monitors at Acts 17, verses 26 through 28. Maybe now you'll see. Paul says, And he, God, made from every made from one man, he and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Now here it is. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. Do you sense the argument he's using here? He's basically saying to his very secular and even decadent culture, God's a lot closer to you than you think. He made you. He loves you. He's absolutely provident over this world and sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his will or even outside of his design. And he's the hound of heaven after you, and he's a lot closer to you, even to lost people, he says, than you might think. He wants us to know him through believing and trusting in him. We all know that. But hopefully you'll see today that one of the things Jesus brings with him into our lives, even in his resurrected state, is this desire and reality of revelation, the revealing of God to people and to you. Now, here's the catch we need to wrestle with, however. And tell me if this isn't true. Part of the dilemma with what we're looking at here today is that you and I live in a world and culture today that though loosely theistic, and by loosely theistic I simply mean that most Americans believe loosely in some sort of divine being that's behind the universe, given that, however, we live in a culture that truly does not believe, I don't think, that God breaks in regularly into this world that he has created, let alone into our very lives. In other words, many people today, and I think this influences, I'll show you in a second, how we function today as Christians. Many people today don't believe that God is regularly breaking into this world and even our lives with revelation and power. That's why Lily Tomlin made the joke that she made. That it's okay for you one-sided to pray to God, but the second you say that he has said or spoken or done something to you, you're considered kind of weird because that's the culture that we live in today. Deep down, we really don't believe this aspect of God's personal revelation or even revelation through his word, and it becomes then a vicious circle. Because of that, then, we rob ourselves of needed faith 
in his power and revelation, and it's the needed faith that will unleash more of God's activity in our lives. Give me a head nod that you understand that. So it's like a, a double negative that happens to us is that we don't believe in the first place, and because we don't believe, we rob ourselves of what John Piper calls future grace as a result of that. that that's a culture that you and I live in. I remember one of the first times I ever realized this, I had just become a Christian. And, I, and I've told the story before, and I think my father was okay with me sharing with it, but my dad, who's a very intelligent man, an attorney, and, and, uh, and, and very well-read, uh, when I first became a Christian, I caught him saying to a couple of his friends back in the 80s that Jamie believes in an interventionist God. That's the phrase he used to describe my newfound faith. And I kind of had the, the, the furrowed eyebrow that you do right now. I thought to myself, well, what does that mean, like an interventionist God? So I started talking to him about that. And he basically said, well, you believe in a God who kind of breaks into this world, like every day through prayer and God sightings and things like that. And, and of course, my response as a new Christian was, well, don't you? <laughs> I mean, what's wrong with you? I mean, I, I would, yes, that's the God I believe in. And over the years, as I've talked about it with my dad, I've realized there's an entire school of theology. It's very alive in Europe, but it's even alive in the Ivy League academic halls today. It's called deism. Deism basically argues that God does exist, that God created this world, but kind of like if you get a ball rolling and just step back and let the ball roll on its own. God created this world, but very early on, he stepped back. And now he's just sitting back watching how things are going to go, letting them all take their place. It's a closed universe. Let it all kind of play out, never intervening in the affairs of this world, let alone our lives. That's deism. And it's very alive. Again, in the thinking of many people today, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. I mean, there's some historic people that were very strong into deism. And my point is, is that I think a lot of Christians today function like deists. Have you ever noticed that? I'm not sure even many church people today really believe that God is alive and well, active, breaking in regularly, or at least wanting to, into our very lives. Here's how I think most Christians function. Let me see a picture of my microwave and stove. This is a picture of my microwave and stove. This is going to be a great story. You guys are going to love this. Uh, we live in a house uh, north of here that's about 20 years old, and our microwave and stove are original to the house. I have a home warranty, which I'm not happy with now, but that's another story. And, and my microwave broke recently, and so I called the home warranty people out, and they said, well, we think the main unit that, you know, uh, cooks it is bad. Because, you see, the problem was it was turning on, and it would light up, and, and it would spin, but it wouldn't cook the food. And so they came in, and they ordered the part. That took a week. You'll say, well, I'm not happy with them. It took a week. They replaced the part. It still didn't work. So then they said, well, we think the logic board, which is that whole panel up at the top there that controls the stove or the oven and the microwave, we think that's broken. The problem is we don't make it anymore. It's too old. And so there's a company that will rebuild it. And I'm like, rebuild it? And how long will that take? An additional two weeks. It's now been like two weeks since I've been without a microwave, and I'm wasting away to nothing. And so, <laughs> so I'm giving them my best shot to say replace this thing, and they're saying no. And so they take the logic board out, and they send it away, and sure enough, it comes back, and, and, and it now works. And I asked the guy, I said, how could it turn on, you know, and even get power to light up and power to spin, but no power to cook? And he said, well, it's just part of what happened with the logic board. This part wore out, and it wasn't getting power to the right area. And I thought, you know, that's just how so many Christians function. 
I mean, honestly, we come to church, we push our buttons, and, and, and something lights up, and the turnstile spins, and we go off on our way and do our own thing. But if people really knew, there's absolutely no power to our lives, amen? There's really no movement of God. Honestly, I have sometimes some Christians, I'll say, tell me what God's doing in your life right now, and they tell me about their conversion 30 years ago. And I'm super glad that God saved you 30 years ago, but if that's the last memory you have of him breaking into your world, again, I don't judge you, I'm sad for you. As your pastor, I go, boy, I long for you to know that he is a God of revelation and that he desires on a regular basis, not every day, don't hear me say that, but on a regular basis to give you what one of my mentors years ago called God sightings, where throughout your day, you see something in which you say, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. John Orberg calls those rainbow days. You know, kind of like Noah after the flood, that when the rainbow came, you don't have a ton of rainbows, but you see them regularly enough where when you get a rainbow day, you say, that's God. So what do we do with this? How do we posture our lives in such a way as to tap into and receive his revelation on a regular basis? This is my closing thought to you today, and that is to slow down and start to listen and look for God. That's the best thing I can tell you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's rich in the story before us here today. Uh, Some commentators make a pretty big deal of that fig tree, and I think there might be something to it. They made a big deal of the fact that the fig tree in the Old Testament really was a place where people went to rest, to get out of the heat, to slow down, to ponder, even to meditate, even to find God. It's actually in prophetic literature. Give me a click here. Micah 4 verse 4 says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Isn't that an interesting passage? That the fig tree really does represent this place of safety, this place of slowing down, this place to be with God. And what they suggest, these Bible experts, is that maybe one of the reasons Nathaniel received that revelation was because he had slowed down in his character and in his heart. Remember, there was no deceit in him. And in slowing down, he was much able to see this revelation of God in his life even though he dissed Jesus initially, you know, and said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When Philip said, come and see, his heart and his character were postured well enough that he could come and see. And so my closing question to you today is, what is your life like when it comes to the fig tree? Do you have a regular time where you slow down enough, posture yourself in such a way as to listen to God and receive his revelation? Theologians for years have noted that there are four ways that God speaks to us. Just give me all of them right up front here. I'm way out of time. And that is that God speaks to us as we've already established through his word, which is why Bible reading and Bible study is so important. He speaks to us through other people, which is why fellowship and community is so important. He speaks to us through his creation and even our circumstances, as he did with Nathaniel here. And then he speaks to us, and this is the one I want to close on, this morning. He speaks to us in our inward being through our conscience and even through what Elijah calls the still small voice. It's probably one of the most scary things for a lot of Christians, but I call them promptings from the Holy Spirit, nudges from God on a regular basis in which I think God on on a regular basis is trying to say something to me, Jamie. And the question is, am I listening? There are plenty of days I go through my day 
and, and I try so hard to be open to the Lord, but I, I think there's plenty of times where I've looked back and God truly nudged me to do certain things. I'm going to be on an airplane this afternoon, and every time I'm on an airplane, I, I sense the Lord's nudging. Basically, He just says, at least talk to the guy next to you. <laughs> at least ask him about his life. And I'm like, no, Lord, that's what Bose headphones are for, you know, and <laughs> things like that. And God's nudging my spirit to not be so selfish, to not use the excuse of being with people in church all day, to love the person next to me. I was walking out of church a couple weeks ago, and I was heading to my car Saturday night. I'm hungry. I'm trying to get home to Kim, and there's this gal walking alone, and I just sensed the Holy Spirit say, talk to her. Ask her about how long she's been at this church. And I engaged in a 20-minute conversation and heard the most amazing story of what God's doing in a very, very new believer's life here in our church. There are times God nudges me to give away my resources. Does he do that for you? I, I did this intentionally when we uh, got the final number on Friday. <laughs> the final number I got for the offering that we took last week was 145992 And you know, we have enough money that I could have rounded it up to 146000 Do you all understand that? I mean, eight bucks. I could have done that easily myself. And, and, and did it. But I, I left it at 145992 for a reason. And I don't say this to shame you. I say this as a challenge to us. Is that I wonder if somehow last week God nudged one of you to give eight bucks and you didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. I wonder if God didn't nudge some of us as he does so often to do just something a little bit more. And because we haven't slowed down, because we're not under our fig tree, because we're not available to him. And again, no one's going to hell over this, but it's, we just do a drive-by. We do a drive-by. And, and we miss out on the revelation of his movement in our lives. I'm committing today to try to be a lot more tender and attuned to the things of God in my life. I, I think that's what he teaches us in this scripture. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper communion right now and let our venues and campuses do it as well. Let me just close by saying this is a great way to practice what we've learned today, communion and the Lord's Supper. It's a time where we can slow down before Him, spend some time in worship and prayer, and just ask God to continue to speak to your heart and mind, to move in your life, and let's just all share stories of what He's doing. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You that You give us Your goodness and grace through Your Son, Jesus Christ, the Logos of God, come to take away the sins of the world. And God, I pray that as we uh, move to this table now, that you might be honored and glorified, blessed, and that, Lord, you would bless us as well. We want to slow down, sit under our fig tree now, and listen to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.